it just occurred to me, if you happened to be the one that pulled that prank <laughs> and you took communion without confessing it, <laughs> your eternal fate is in great doubt. So perhaps you should meet with the elders and confess and hopefully their intercession will make a difference. I'm also thinking about that picture with Gordon and Sue. I, I can't get this out of my mind. When Gordon and I were smuggling Bibles, uh, well, what actually happened, we were in the Netherlands and decided to go down to Ermelo and visit Brother Andrew's headquarters. And they had the first translations of the entire Bible into Tajik and the first translation of the New Testament in Uzbek and want some way to get them there. So we said, we'll get them there. But the problem was, at the airport at Sherium Tevo in Moscow, I had this duffel bag with all this contraband on a cart, and here was the checkpoint. What am I gonna do? Well, Gordon was walking in front of me, and the agent was a woman. And as Gordon started talking to her in broken English, admiring him, she said, oh, you are so beautiful. <laughs> and while she was admiring Gordon, I slipped the Bibles by. <laughs> so uh, that, that, you may not realize it, but in the eyes of some people, he is beautiful. <laughs> and Freya, also, are we now supposed to dress you as Colonel? Yes, you do, All right. <laughs> What a world we're in. <laughs> well, uh, here's the word that God has given me today. What is the foundational message of the Bible? And on what single truth is everything else in God's word based? The answer is, God is God. God is God. The first words of the Bible are Bereshith bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. And what did he create? The heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And the opening chapters of Genesis describe the order in which God created the universe, amazing. Think about this. The earth is one of the smallest planets in all of creation. And God chose this very privileged planet to be the one on which he would focus. So in these opening chapters of Genesis, we read about God's forming the earth and separating the water from, from the earth and the plants that began and the uh, waterfowl that began and the aquatic life that began, the animal life that began, and finally God said, let us make man in our image. And the image of God who created them, male and female, created him, the end of chapter 1. Now, in the garden, God had put a very beautiful garden in this creation, the Garden of Eden and the creation and he said to Adam, the first commission I'm giving to you is to tend this garden and take care of it. And the second one was, after creation of woman, 
He said, I'll give you another commission. Have a bunch of kids and fill the earth. And it'll all come under your subjection or should. Now, one of the things that is important, acknowledging that God is God, is the fact that he is God, he expects everything to be done according to the manner in which he said to do it. But giving man free will and desiring for man to have that opportunity to show their love for him by obedience, he put one tree in the garden. He said, you can eat of everything, all the trees, everything, but leave this one alone. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, the day that you eat of it, you shall die. It was important to God that these creatures that he had made in his image would choose to acknowledge God as God. And you know well the story of the fall, the tragic fall, and as a result in the world today, we have in this body, people are having physical ailments. Why? Because of that fall. We have tornadoes. We have all types of disturbance in the creation today. If that fall had not happened, none of that would be a part of our human existence. God is God. He's the owner. He's the owner. Psalm 24, the earth is Yahweh's. That's the, that really is a personal name of God. Anytime you see in the Bible T-H-E and then capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the word Yahweh, the personal name of God. And the Jews thought it was so sacred we couldn't pronounce it, so they would substitute Adonai, which means Lord. But it is Yahweh. The earth is Yahweh's. And all it contains, the world and all that dwells therein. Psalm 19, which Jim quote, James quoted, he's James, I'm Jim. We're both James, but that's okay. But really my alias is Boswell Theodore Farnsworth, but you don't need to remember that one. <laughs> the heavens are declaring the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Isn't that so true? I don't know about you, but I love to get out at night in an open field where there's no distraction and look at the heavens. There's just a sense of God that I don't feel anyplace else. A couple weeks ago, I was playing my clarinet at Woodward Park, and people come up and I always witness to them, and here this one woman came up and began to speak to her about the Lord, and and after she began to leave, I maybe I've talked about this before, I don't know, she worked maybe 30, 40 feet away and began to play, For the beauty of the earth, for the glory of it. She was playing that on my clarinet. She stopped, lifted her eyes and lifted her hands and just began to revel in the gorgeous creation of God. The heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse declaring the work of his hands. How beautiful to think about that. God is God. You know, that truth, that foundational truth undergirded what James talked about last week, relationships. What Bill talked about 
The week before that, the fact that motherhood is the most important job in the world and culture tries to underdo that, but that's all based on the fact that God is God. Or the word I brought the week before that, pray and keep on praying, which Gordon uh, reiterated today as an echo of that. All that's based on the fact God is God. What does that mean? Now, I want to rehearse a little bit this morning of what the new members class has been going through, and probably all of us know, but it doesn't hurt to have a refresher. As far as TCF is concerned, the fact that God is God is a thing that causes us to do what we do at this church. First of all, what we do on Sunday morning. Why do we come together and what do we do when we are here? As we study the scriptures and the earliest documents of the church, the reason to come together on Sunday is to participate in the Lord's Supper. For that reason, every Sunday, we have this marvelous, unbelievable privilege of participating in the body and blood of our Lord. The human mind cannot comprehend the magnificent and depth of that. Now this morning, in no way am I going to be criticizing any other churches. To me, I've always tried to live by the motto, we're not the only Christians, we're just Christians only. <laughs> and uh, Chuck Fair and I some years ago... Uh, gathered together ministers of the city to have a prayer meeting once a month. I, I think I, I, it's either 986 or 896 invitations I sent out to ministers in the city. Uh, we met with the Bishop of Tulsa, the Catholic bishop, and said, we'd like your priest to come and join us for prayer. And he said, well, I'd love for him to, but that time of day they're going to be uh, conducting the Eucharist and we just mass, we can't do it. But for... Quite a while, once a month, about 75 to 80 men of all denominations came together and we prayed for the city. After a while, as I traveled with Gordon and Chuck's mental illness started to get out of hand, we handed it off to somebody else. And occasionally I'd go to the meetings he led, but just a bunch of preachers talking, not much praying. But it's so marvelous. I remember sitting with Bishop Cox, the Episcopalian bishop of this area, what a dear man of God. I would never say we're the only Christians, but we are Christians only. And so what we do on Sunday morning as we come together expresses that God is God. And this is what he expects his church to do when we come together. One of the earliest documents that we have that describes a Sunday morning meeting in detail it was written by a man named Justin around 140 A.D., about 40 years after the death of John the Apostle. And he said, because the, the Romans were starting to criticize Christians, saying, you practice cannibalism because they talk about the body and blood of Jesus. So he wrote an apology. And he said, using their language, on the day called Sunday, he said, we come together. And we have the Lord's Supper. And if anybody can't get to the meeting, the deacons take it to them so nobody ever misses the Lord's Supper. And then the man who is presiding 
reads from the memoirs of the apostles. Now, originally, the Gospel of Luke and Acts, because they were both written by Luke, circulated as a single document. But around shortly into the second century, they were separated, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were combined into a single document, and that was the memoirs of the apostles, which were read on Sunday morning. And then he said, uh, the man presiding, if he has time, he makes some comments. Kind of like what happens in our house church. The idea of a sermon didn't come around until the 5th century with John Chrysostom. Chrysostom was called the golden-tongued oracle, and he would preach and people would flock. That's where the idea of a sermon as we know it today began in the 5th century. There was no music. There was possibly a singing occasionally sometime, but it was not till Martin Luther that singing became an accepted or expected part of the Sunday service. He introduced singing as he thought as a wonderful way to cause people to inculcate doctrine. <laughs> now, is it wrong on Sunday to have singing? Is it wrong to have preaching as we know it because it is unbiblical? Not at all. Because something is unbiblical does not mean it is anti-biblical. To me, an illustration of that, as we've talked before, some of you heard me explain this, is the, the synagogue. Remember the central thing of the Jews was the temple. Everything happened at the temple. But when the Babylonians carried them away to captivity and destroyed the temple, what were they going to do? And the Jewish... Families began to fear that their children were going to lose their Jewishness. And so they began to ask the older man in the family to teach. And finally, every place there were ten families together, they formed what was called a synagogue, sunagogos, which means to come together. And one man became the teacher, the rabbi. And that's the birth of the synagogue. Unbiblical, something human beings did as expediency. But when they returned to Jerusalem, they brought the synagogue with them. Remember, Jesus Christ taught in the synagogue. As a matter of fact, he began his ministry by saying, The Spirit of God is upon me. That happened in a synagogue. The Apostle Paul preached in synagogue. No condemnation ever of the synagogue. And yet, it was unbiblical. But it was not anti-biblical. The only time something unbiblical becomes wrong is when it becomes a substitute for something that is biblical. And so, I don't know what you think about certain preaching, but I rejoice that God has allowed us to enjoy music, to express our hearts to Him emotionally in music and all the marvelous hymns psalms and spiritual songs that have come through the ages and I believe the heart of God is pleased when he hears our songs but the important things are as we go back in Acts chapter 242 they continued steadfastly now in every one of these cases there's a definite article in Greek the the doctrine of the apostles not just anybody but the doctrine of the apostles the fellowship referring to the local church, 
the breaking of the bread, which is the Lord's Supper. Now, when they met from house to house, they broke bread, but this is the breaking of the bread. That became a euphemism for the Lord's Supper. And then the prayers, not just confoded prayer, but the prayers. Obviously, the select prayers a church get together. And unfortunately, many of our English translations do not display that. It says they just were committed to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to breaking of bread and, and prayer. They missed it totally by omitting that definite article. And that's what we do on Sunday morning, isn't it? Exactly as the apostles, the Christians in Jerusalem in that very first church ever did. That's because God is God. And whatever other churches do, that's between them and God. But for us, God is God, and we will do it God's way. Or else we'll feel guilty, at least I will. <laughs> I don't know about the rest of y'all. What about, what does it do, what should someone do when he wants to be saved? Now today we have, you listen to the radio or television, Pray Jesus' prayer and invite Jesus into your heart. Whoopee, you got it. There's not one single example of that ever happening in the Bible. There are nine cases of conversion in the book of Acts. And here's what you hear. See, hear the gospel. Believe it. Repent. Confess. Be immersed and receive the Holy Spirit. Now, God at times will alter the sequence of those but present in every single one of them is to hear the gospel and be immersed. Some of them mentioned this, some mentioned that. Remember on the day of Pentecost, people cried out, what shall we do? And Peter convinced them that they had actually crucified the Son of God. What shall we do? And Peter said, repent. Now, by the word, repent is metanoeo which means change your mind. There's another word, metamelomai, which means to be sorrow. And later on, Paul wrote, there's a repentance that doesn't lead to salvation. That's metamelomai. Metanoeo does. Metanoeo means to change your mind. It's almost the same as pistul, which means believe. Believe what you've heard. Give yourself to it. And don't be afraid to testify. Then be immersed into Jesus Christ and receive the Holy Spirit. As I've said, God is free to do anything he wants. And remember, when the first time the gospel was preached to Gentiles was in the household of Cornelius, and while Peter, Peter was preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on the crowd. <laughs> Paul said, wait, since Jews, uh, Gentiles have got this the same way the Jews did, then who can forbid water that they be baptized? And they immersed them all that day. That's always the pattern. Sometimes this, sometimes that, but in all nine cases of conversion acts, it is always they hear the gospel and then immersion. And some of those other steps are mentioned. Otherwise, someday they are assumed. God is God. Who are we to say, God, I know what you commanded, but we really have something better. We really have something better. Where did sprinkling and pouring come from? That came from clinical, so-called clinical baptism. When someone was about to die and they knew that death was just a few hours away, 
and they had never given themselves to Jesus, had never been immersed into Christ, they would bring buckets of water and pour all over them and get them so wet and the bed was so wet it's almost like they'd been immersed. And then they died. Interesting, one man they did that to didn't die. And he became very active in the church. And I can't remember his name, but I remember reading the episode in, in ancient writings. He rose and became ambitious and wanted to grow in the church clergy. They said, no, we can't advance you. You've never been immersed. Well, you poured all that water all over me. They wouldn't let him. So what he did, he left the church and formed his own sect, which became an interesting challenge in the, in the early centuries. The Didache, which is one of the oldest documents describing many things about the early church, said you should immerse somebody in cold running water. If you don't have cold running water, then immerse them in still water. If you don't have that, if you're in jail and there's no way to get that, just have them stand and pour buckets of water on their head so they'll feel like they're immersed. <laughs> Immersion. Immersion. It's interesting to me that the Greek Orthodox Church, which does baptize babies, immerses them because you can't tell a Greek, Bobdidzo means anything other than immerse. God is God. Who are we to say, we know what you commanded. We know what the apostles imparted to us. We have something better. It's easier. <laughs> That's the New Testament pattern without exception. Now, some people will look at Romans 10, you know, if you believe in your heart, confess your mouth, and you draw doctrine from that. That's really deductive reasoning, but it's important in Scripture that we always use inductive reasoning. That means you take all that Scripture has to say on a subject, and then from that, draw your doctrine. And so I believe, confess, yes, and then what's the next thing you do? You go to immersion. Remember the Philippian jailer? He said to Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, believe in all your house. I believe. And that night, he immersed them all. It's always there. It's always there. And we must never, ever, as a church, change what God said to do. God is God. We could go on with that about the church so much. But even in our private lives, we need to think about that. Have you ever told a lie? <laughs> if you have, self became God. Why do we tell a lie? I want something, and so I've got to lie to get it. Or I've done something, I want to hide it, so I lie. My mother, I don't remember when this happened, but not long before her death, and she said, you know, I knew that Barbara was, you are going to go after her because first time in your life you lied to me <laughs> something I was doing after I don't know what it was with Barb but I didn't want her oh I'm so ashamed of ever having lied to my mother but self was what was the God that caused me to lie to my mother anytime you steal it's self one of the striking examples to me of that is is David 
Remember the story of Saul in which the Philistines were starting to assemble. God, through the prophet Samuel, said, go and to, to, to Kadesh. And there I want you to prepare and I will come, Samuel said, and we'll offer this offering. We'll be there in seven days and we'll offer this burnt offering to God. And the Philistine army kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and some of the Jews started running away. And Saul said, well, I know what Samuel said, but I'm going to go ahead and do it myself. So he himself offered the burnt offering in disobedience to God. Samuel arrived and said, what have you done? Saul said, well, the people started leaving. I was afraid, and so I went ahead and did it. And God, through Samuel, said, because you did not honor me as God, because you disobeyed me, I'm taking the kingdom away from you and I'm going to give it to as a man, to a man who is a man after my own heart, David. Think of that. David was described as a man after God's own heart. And then we have that tragic situation. David had become king, successfully defeated enemy after enemy, and now his armies under able commanders were out fighting, and David as king stayed behind. And one night, I spoon because it was kind of hot, <laughs> went up on the roof. Remember, the houses all had flat roofs. Walking around the cool of the evening, and lo and behold, on the roof of another house, there was a naked woman taking a bath, Bathsheba. Now, we talked before about the truth that James presents. He says, uh, when we have lust, and when lust come, gives birth, it comes forth and gives birth to sin. And the idea is that in all of us, there are over various kinds. The devil watches to see what kind. And so every time he can, he'll create a situation to fertilize one of those ovum that will give birth to sin. He knew David's. And it was this naked woman. <laughs> you know, David didn't just lust after her with his mind. He actually called her to him. The king asked this woman to come. She was the wife of one of his loyal warriors who was off fighting the enemy. And he lay with her and thought, boy, it was something. <laughs> she was pregnant. Oh, my, what am I going to do now? I'm going to be found out. So he had Uriah call from the battlefront and thought he'd get home and go sleep with his wife. And they think, oh, well, that's his baby. But he wouldn't do it. He said, why should I go and spend the night with my wife when God's army is out on the field? I would not do this with the other men out there. Who am I? And so he went back to the field, and David sent word to the commanders Press against the city, and then have everybody withdraw but Uriah, and he'll get killed. And that's exactly what happened. Self. <laughs> Self. And you remember Nathan the prophet came and revealed to David what he had done. And in that 51st Psalm is David's lament over his sin 
and begging God to forgive him. Isn't it wonderful that God will still something like that? But what was David doing? God was not God to him in that moment. Self was God. Can you think of situations in your life when it's been self instead of God's being God? We have to kind of be careful, don't we? Because sometimes I'm going to tell you what. Self is so deceptive. In my pre-dawn prayers, as I ask God to audit my life, one of the things he constantly does is, Jim, self-rule here, self-rule there, and I'll repent, and the next day, same thing, you know. Self is so subtle and so persistent. That's one of the beautiful things about the Lord's table. Remember Paul writing the Corinthians? scolded them. He said, when you come together, it's not to take the Lord's Supper, even though you have it. You have this big meal. You're getting drunk and carrying on. That is an unworthy manner in which to take the Lord's Supper. Then he said, the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. All of you eat of this. This is my body. And after supper, he took the cup, the cup of the blessing, the last cup of the Seder meal, and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. All of you drank of it. Let a man examine himself and slow them eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who partakes in an unworthy manner takes damnation unto himself. Boy, I'll tell you what, what we do on Sunday morning when we have the loaf and the cup, serious business, brother and sister, serious business. I appreciate today the guitar background gently that we could in a meditative way partake of the loaf and the cup. God is God. It is important that we remember that. That is a foundational truth of the Bible. You know, one thing, should I do this? Well, I will. This is a new Catholic edition of the Holy Bible. Sanctioned by the Pope. Here's his seal. It has the imprimatur of... Cardinal Archbishop, actually, Archbishop Francis Cardinal Spellman, Archbishop of New York. This is a Bible that has authority in the Roman Catholic Church. Let me read the footnote to Romans 6. I should have done this earlier, but I just feel like I've got to do it. Romans 6 is one of the strongest sections in the Bible concerning immersion. And here's what the footnote on Romans 6 says about Paul's statement concerning baptism. Verse 3 of Romans 6. St. Paul alludes 
to the manner in which baptism was normally conferred in the primitive church by immersion. The descent into the water is suggestive of the descent of the body into the grave. And the ascent is suggestive of the resurrection to a new life. St. Paul obviously sees more than a mere symbol in the rite of baptism. As a result of it, we're incorporated into Christ's mystical body and live a new life. And remember Jesus, some of the last words he spoke to the followers was the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. How do you do it? Immersing them into, it's a Greek uh, ice, excellent, epsilon iotis su, into the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. In the words, in immersion, we enter into a relationship with the Trinity. Staggering thing to think about. And Jesus said, that's what we're to do. And then disciple people, <laughs> teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. What I said today, of course, a little out of order, but sequential order, but there it is. God is God. Who are we to say, step aside? We have a better idea in the church, in our private life, for that matter, <laughs> even in the nation. May God's blessing rest upon you.